If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The Bizarre, The Unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So we're driving on Interstate 4, as we call it, the 4 here in Orlando, because we want to be like everybody in Los Angeles. (laughs) We were marveling at all the beautiful luxury cars, like Porsches were zooming by. I love the looks of the F type Jaguar. I see a lot of those down here. Yeah, we saw a 90s Bronco that was just like prime. Maseratis are popular down here as well. And then this Lamborghini goes flying by, Mm. um, which is very low to the ground, but you were like, oh, I love a Lamborghini. Yeah. Kat says, I would never own a Lamborghini. What if I have to go to Ikea? And that's a valid point. Thank you. That's why you get a Bronco. Maybe you or you could get a Lamborghini with a trailer hitch. Yeah, everyone everyone has a trailer hitch on their Lamborghini. Yeah, and then get a trailer that has it's really aerodynamic and has some of the same body features as the Lamborghini. <laughs> that is a real niche market. It is. It is. Okay. What you got for me? It's been said by those who have seen her that there is nothing like her today on earth and that her counterpart never did exist. That's what one newspaper said in 1886. And they were talking about one of the biggest stars in show business at the time. Cher. Many people don't know Cher was born right after the Civil War, but um, (laughs) starting in the second half of the 19th century and into the first part of the 20th century, America had an obscene fascination with sideshow freaks. According to Britannica, the term freak appears to be descended from the old English word frisian, which means to dance. Oh. Freaking meant to cavort any sudden movement or capricious behavior. Oh, I like that. Humans with bodies that were perceived to deviate significantly from the understood norm of the time were often exhibited in what was known at the time as unusual nature shows. But these shows developed quickly into a variety of different genres that have become collectively known as the freak show. They were also known as a rarity show, pit shows, and kid shows. Kid shows. Kid shows. 
The term freak show didn't come into full use until the close of uh, the 19th century. One of the most popular attractions for a very short period of time was a young girl named Ella Harper. She became known as the Camel Girl. Oh, jeez. She was born with a very rare medical condition, which is known as congenital genorecurvatum. Essentially, her knees bend backwards. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, this is because her mom saw a camel when she was pregnant, right? <laughs> yeah, that's probably how they pitched it. Actually, how they pitched it was she was part human, part camel. Ew. I know. I don't like that. Looking at her pictures, and there are a lot of them that are still available, I can see where her leg could be compared to that of a camel. But to me, it's more like an ostrich. Oh. You know, it's it's... Unique and interesting. She was forced to walk on all fours because of her condition, using her hands as front legs. She also had a twin brother who was born. He did not have that condition, but he passed away after just three months of age. It seemed as though Ella's life was marked for tragedy from the very beginning. Now, she was born on January 5th, 1870 in Hendersonville, Tennessee. Her father's name was William Harper. Her mother was Minerva Ann Childress. I love the name Minerva. Isn't that the greatest name? Dad was a farmer, and he uh, he raised stock in Sumner County. At just 12 years of age, Ella began her career in the circus and sideshows in October of 1882. She mostly did shows around the St. Louis area, occasionally uh, into the New Orleans area, But in very short order, her demand increased and she began traveling to many different states. They would hire her. She was just kind of a freelance freak, if you'll pardon the term. Okay. (laughs) State fairs from all over the area would hear about her and they would contact her father. And then they would travel to these states and she uh, she would do, quote, shows. Now, that's great, except freelance artists so often have a hard time getting paid. And, you know, it's just it's irresponsible, I think, of us as a society to think that because someone is a freelance artist that you're not bound to the uh, contracts that you've signed with them. Yeah. um, Maybe the state fairs, when they contacted her, uh, suggested that the exposure would be good for her in lieu of payment. Those of you who those of you who freelance know what I'm talking about. Uh, The public seemed fascinated with Ella Harper, the camel girl. The crowds that she drew drew more attention and then ultimately drew the attention of a showman named H.W. Harris in 1886. He owned a pretty successful show. It was more of a regional show. Uh, It was called the Nickel Plate Circus. And he was a very ambitious man. He was determined to assemble, in his mind, the most diverse roster of freaks available. He already had uh, some pretty pretty interesting acts, He, especially at the time. He had lion tamers. That was pretty exotic. He had acrobats who performed atop galloping horses. I was just thinking it would be funny to have lion tamers in your freak show, but no lions. Just guys who were like, oh, yeah, you should have seen it. They crack their whip and storm out of the cage. Um, He quickly signed Ella to a contract, and she quickly became the star of the Nickel Plate Circus. It didn't take long. They marketed her as the camel girl, half human, half camel. After just a few weeks with the Nickel Plate Circus, her popularity exploded. They began including her on the advertising posters. She was like the biggest draw in a very short amount of time. 
People flocked to her, quote, performances. And before every show, the pitchman, you know, the, the guy that does the ballyhoo outside sure. trying to get people inside, he would pass out pitch cards. This was a, a common practice. Uh, people on the midway, he'd just go hand them these, these pitch cards. And they were to try to explain to the audience what they could see if they went inside the tent to see the camel girl. Some of these pitch cards actually survive. And here's what it said, quote, I am called the camel girl because my knees turn backward. I can walk best on my hands and feet, as you will see in my picture. I have traveled considerably in show business for the past four years. Even though she was referred to a performer, there was little performing involved. She was really exploited as what you sure. know, she was. She was exhibited. Uh, they would bring her out on stage and she would just stand there and then they would parade a camel around her and encourage people to compare the similarities. <laughs> she was basically a prop. Regardless, she was Harris's star and he paid her well. He paid her 200 bucks a week, which is equivalent wow. to $5,000 today. She was making five grand a week. She traveled with Harris for just over a year. And soon became tired of being regularly humiliated, mm. uh, of being called camel girl and pushed on stage with a camel so that spectators can see and compare and marvel at the similarities. So Ella started putting a plan in place. Over the year of making what would be equivalent today of $260,000, she saved her money and made a plan for the future. And she insisted that this information be added to her pitch cards, quote, I intend to quit the show business and go to school and fit myself for another occupation. In 1887, after just one year with the circus and being exhibited as one of Harris's freaks, she quit and pursued an education. She moved back to her uh, hometown after quitting the circus and went back to school. It appears that she actually attained a higher education. She took college classes and um, she shunned the limelight. Uh-huh. It's good, because yeah. otherwise she'd probably be on fire. <laughs> There's actually very little that we can find out about her in the news, or at least in the press after 1886. Very few historical records and archives. Uh, they, they didn't mention her for quite a few years. It appeared as though she just wanted to disappear and live a quiet life. Fair enough. So from here, I had to kind of piece the story together based on public records since uh, she seemed to be actively avoiding press coverage. Um, Ella shows up in the 1900 census, living in Henderson, Tennessee, her hometown. And then on June 28th, 1905, she marries a guy named uh, Robert L. Savely, or Savely, S-A-V-E-L-Y. How would you say that? Savely or Savely? Savely. She married him in Sumner, Sumner County. Robert was listed as a school teacher, and eventually he became a bookkeeper for a photography shop. According to birth records, Ella and Robert gave birth to a baby girl on the 27th of April in 1906. The baby was named Mabel Evans Savely. I love the name Mabel. Minerva and Mabel. Aww. Sadly, Tragedy struck again on October 1st of the same year. The, at the age of six months, Mabel died. Oh. In 1910, we find Ella and her husband have moved to Davidson County, Tennessee. And then Ella and her husband and her mother 
are registered as living in Nashville at 12 at uh, 1012 Joseph Avenue. I want to go to Nashville. I love Nashville. We're due for another Nashville show. I absolutely agree. Zanies, call us. In 1918, Ella and her husband, Robert, decided that they still wanted to be parents. Uh, but for whatever reason, they decided to not try to have one themselves again and adopted a baby girl. They named her Jewel Savely, and she died within three months. Oh, jeez. And then on December 19th, 1921, at 8.15 in the morning, Ella died from complications due to colon cancer at her home. Her husband was the informant on the death certificate, which shows that uh, she is buried in Spring Hill Cemetery in Nashville. Spring Hill Cemetery is located on what is now Gallatin Pike. It's also directly directly across from the Nashville National Cemetery. Spring Hill is a pretty good-sized cemetery. It's been around in one form or another since the uh, early 19th century. If you ever want to visit the grave of Ella Harper, it's located in Section B of the old historic section of the cemetery inside the Harper family plot. Minerva, her mother, joined her there in uh, 1924. So, much has been said about the tragedy that seemed to follow Ella Harper from the day she was born. But according to those who knew her, her friends, her family, her co-workers, they all said that she maintained a a cheerful disposition throughout her entire life. She seemed to live in the moment. No matter how bad things seemed at the time, she always found something positive to look forward to. And that's a lesson we should all be reminded of. It, well, it's a lesson, but it also could be toxic. So just make sure that you're taking care of yourself and not just pretending that everything's just fine. Yeah, there is a difference. My source material, Mysteries Unsolved, All Things Interesting, Wikipedia, Historic Mysteries, Find a Grave, and Ancestry.com, which is becoming one of my new favorite sources for information. <laughs> uh, well, we could absolutely go and see her um, because we are planning on on heading back to Nashville shortly. And, uh, you know, I mean, if we happen to do a show there, that would be great too. But um, <laughs> I just really want to go because of that Fa place. Um, they've got the most amazing noodles. <laughs> and then that corn, that place with the corn. Cat judges how greatly she appreciates various areas that we visit based on the culinary options mm-hmm. that she's provided. Yeah. No shame in my noodle game. And now, that thing in the middle. Rick and Steve, charter members of the Order of Freaks, they've been uh, with us from the beginning, um, wrote us an email and said, hey, we missed the uh, five things in the middle for the thing in the middle. So we thought we'd honor Rick and Steve today and uh, and do just that. So, thing in the middle today, weird facts about fish. Number five, starfish are not fish. Neither are jellyfish. Number four, the oldest known age for a fish was an Australian lungfish. In 2003, it was still alive and well at 65 years of age. Number three, sharks are the only fish that have eyelids. Number two, electric eels and electric rays have enough electricity to kill a horse. And number one, halibut translates to 
holy flatfish, <laughs> and, and which it, is going to be my new exclamation for everything. <laughs> it's like the product Stay Fresh Cheese Bags. <laughs> Stay Fresh Cheese Bags, I'm out. Did you know that the curator used to dream of being a game show announcer? Hard to believe, right? This is The Box of Oddities. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Got a message on uh, one of our social media platforms from Buford T. Ogletree. <laughs> I love that name. It's amazing. Uh, I said, listening to the episodes today, I'm listening backwards. Yeah, I know I'm a freak. Reminded me of a few years ago, my band was on tour in Europe. One night in Belgium, after a show, some friends took us to this restaurant they closed it down for the musicians playing this festival. They brought out three big wooden platters of all sorts of different cheeses, baskets of baguettes and wine. It was so awesome. But we noticed that there was this one, quote, plop of cheese mm. that nobody was touching. And our local friend, Michelle, told us we had to try this cheese. Mm. So reluctantly, we did. And oh, my God, I've never tasted cow shit, but it tastes just like it smelled. 
This was confirmed by our guitarist who grew up on a New Jersey dairy farm <laughs> and said he'd once been slapped in the face by a cow's tail with shit on it. And yes, it did indeed taste exactly like this cheese. I'd been learning some French and I didn't know what it was called, so I named it Fromage du Merde. <laughs> shit cheese. Yeah. In other words. Um, thanks, Buford T. Ogletree. But what kind of cheese was it? He didn't say, so you need to... You need I, to how do I know which cheese to avoid? Avoid the Just one... Just look for the plop? The plop. I'll see what I can find online. I'm, I'm Googling fromage du Melde as we speak. And while I'm doing that, tell me a story. The Melvinas, or the Falkland Islands, are an archipelago in the South Atlantic Ocean. Uh, European claims of discovery date back to the 16th century. Now, the Falklands remained uninhabited until the 1764 establishment of Port Louis on East Falkland by the French captain Louis Antoine de Bougainville. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. That name makes me laugh. Say it again. Louis Antoine de Bougainville. <laughs> Is it because of the Bougain? Yeah. Yeah. Those two syllables alone. Boogan. The... <laughs> Sounds like booger. Stop. There was also a foundation of Port Edgemont on Saunders Island by a British captain named John McBride in 1766. And it's unknown whether the two settlements were aware of each other, which is kind of weird, thinking that the islands may have been settled right about the same time, but by two groups of people who may not have known that the other people were settling. How far apart were they from each other? Well, let's take a look. Because if it was right on the other side of a grove of trees, that would be weird. No, <laughs> no it's two different islands right next to each other. But um, unclear how, how far a distance they, it actually is. But it's more than just a copse of trees. So it wouldn't be like, what's your name? <laughs> Ezekiel. Fuck you, Ezekiel. No, it wouldn't, wouldn't be no. much like that. No. When Western sailors started landing on the Falkland Islands, they were greeted by a very tame dog-like creature. The first recorded sighting was by Captain John Strong in 1690. European settlers assumed the Falklands, also known, as I said, as the Islas Malvinas, were uninhabited. There were no settlements at the time, but they would see this dog-like animal uh, swimming out to approach boats with a <laughs> wagging tail. Oh my God. Some called it a fox, and it became more commonly known as the Falkland Island Wolf. Its scientific name uh, translates to the foolish dog of the South. <laughs> <laughs> because he's friendly, he's foolish. Well, yeah, it turned out to be true. Oh. This animal's coat was extremely dense. Its back and sides were reddish brown or yellowish with a little bit of black, so kind of a muddled coloring. It had a broad skull with small ears and then a slightly bulbous skull on the front. So it looked kind of like a golden retriever skull. This animal, the wara, was four to five feet long with a large wolfish head, uh, but it only stood about 24 inches tall at the shoulder, so much shorter than a wolf. But it wasn't a wolf, nor was it a fox, and it was said to bark just like a domesticated dog. Now, there are lots of birds on the Falkland Islands, and of course, there's the sea animals that live around the islands, but this was the only native land mammal on any of the islands. That's fascinating. 
Now, as I said, this isn't a wolf. This isn't a coyote. It's not a fox. The wara belonged to an independent branch of the dog evolutionary tree. Ooh. So it was, in fact, canine. Yes. Okay. So you can imagine when the Beagle and Charles Darwin arrived at the Falkland Islands in 1833, that lone mammal that was tootling about these islands was very interesting to him. Now, keep in mind, this tiny set of islands is about 460 kilometers away from the South American mainland. That's about 280 miles. So how did this lone mammal come to be on the islands? Well, after a couple hundred years or so, we've probably been able to learn a lot about this guy, right? No, because people are stupid. (laughs) And by 1880, he was extinct. Oh, no. Yeah. That's right. Why? What What were we doing? Were we eating them or just killing them for sport? We were using their fur. There were people who thought that they were going after their sheep, which is actually pretty unlikely. And because they were so friendly and tame, it was super easy to kill them. They would just lure them in with a piece of meat and then jab them in the side with a knife. Oh, man. Captain Strong took one of the animals on his ship, but during the voyage back to Europe... The creature became so frightened by the firing of the ship's cannon, he jumped overboard, dead. Again, they were super tame, um, so they were easy to kill. Dead, dead, dead. There was a live warren taken to the London Zoo in England and another quote-unquote Antarctic wolf that arrived in 1870, but neither survived long. It's just any opportunity that we had to mess with them, we did, and so they all died. Darwin, writing about his 1834 visit to the Falklands, said, The only quadruped native to this island is a large wolf-like fox, which is common to both East and West Falkland. I have no doubt about it being a peculiar species and confined to this archipelago. As far as I am aware, there is no other instance in any other part of the world of so small a mass of broken land distant from a continent possessing so large a quadruped peculiar to itself. Though he did note that their numbers had rapidly decreased and he predicted that within a few years they would be extinct. He said they will probably be classed with the dodo as an animal which will perish from the face of the earth. So how did they survive? Were they eating birds? Were they catching fish? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, It's thought that probably they did mostly survive on like ground birds, geese and so on and so forth. Uh, But also any sort of like seal that made its way up onto the land because there are no rodents. Right. Right. You said there were no mammals. Which is interesting, considering there's this one dog-type animal, and the land closest to it is South America, which is lousy with rodents. I love you, Capybara. I think the proper classification for that is guinea pig giganticus. (laughs) It had been supposed that the most closely related genus was Lycolopex, including the Culpeo, which has been introduced to the Falkland Islands in modern times. But in 2009, an analysis of DNA identified the closest living relative to the Wara as the maned wolf, which is a fox-like South American canid. And it looks like they were separated about 6.7 million years ago. But it diverged from its mainland relatives about 16,000 years ago. Its closest mainland relative, also extinct, by the way. Mm. (sighs) 
So how did they get there? That's the question. They obviously didn't swim there. Um, maybe if they were friendly at some point, some people from the mainland, hey, dropped them off there. That's possible, I guess. But um, it's probably pretty likely that uh, as the Ice Age receded and ocean levels rose, they got trapped on these islands. Maybe there was a population, a dense population of them on a mountaintop somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then everything melted in the in the seas rose and they were just stranded there. Well, that was a theory for a time. Ah, uh, wrong. Yeah. No other oceanic island as remote as the Falklands has a native canid. There's the Island Fox of California here on the west coast of the U.S. and Darwin's Fox in Chile, both though, of those islands are much closer to a continent. Mm. So there were theories that maybe this wara had made its way on floating debris. Maybe it had a raft of some sort and got to the island, but it's so far from the mainland, it didn't seem very likely. It's kind of like a canine raw expedition. Thank you, everybody. A Thor Heyerdahl reference. It was thought that maybe an Ice Age land bridge or an ice connection between the Falkland Islands and South America enabled the species' ancestors to traverse the gap. I guess the seafloor in that region is incredibly flat, so that if the water did get lower, it was it would be possible that it could freeze between those two pieces of land. And it's possible that the founding population of the Wara crossed on that ice bridge during the last ice age. It seemed likely because there was little evidence of a human presence before the Europeans arrived in 1690. But now, traces of ancient fires and hunting show that indigenous people arrived on the Falkland Islands centuries prior to the Europeans. This is according to a researcher's report in Science Advances. The Yagan people, historically fire-wielding seafarers who kept foxes as companions. Wait, wait. Fire-yielding seafarer? Fire-wielding seafarers. Fire-wielding seafarers. That That's my new Twitter handle. <laughs> you don't have a Twitter. I do. I just don't use it. I've never seen it. We have been together for over a decade, and I've never seen that you have a Twitter. I don't think I've ever posted anything on it. <laughs> I have it. <laughs> This report shows that abrupt spikes in charcoal levels in sediments offer telltale signs of human arrival from 1,070 to 620 years ago. This is according to Kit Hamley, a paleontologist and archaeologist at the University of Maine in Orono. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Our hometown university. Home of the black bears. This says that the spikes mirror later traces of Europeans' fires around 250 years ago. Hamley says seeing these peaks in the charcoal record was, quote, a heart-pounding moment. When people first arrived on an island ecosystem, fire frequency and intensity dramatically increases. And the charcoal record suggests that people could have arrived on the islands multiple times long before the Europeans arrived. That doesn't surprise me, but it is really cool that they can verify that. Now, there is archaeological evidence for a close relationship between humans and wild canids 
in the mainland Tierra del Fuego over 2,000 years ago, and the Juarez mainland relative shows up in mortuary sites in Argentina, dating back to more than 2,000 years ago. What do you mean mortuary sites? So where people are buried from that time period. I see, okay. They also have these dogs buried there. It gives credence to the idea that foxes had integrated into a society beyond that of, you know, scavenging meat around the campfire. Mm -hmm. They were buds. And so it makes sense that if you are going to take an expedition to these weird islands, you take your bud with you. Take your dog. Radiocarbon dating of the war remains also show the animals were present at the same time that the charcoal noted in Hamley's research uh-huh. was deposited. Uh-huh. Our interpretation, she says, of the New Island site in particular is that there's very, very strong paleoecological and archaeological evidence that humans had utilized these islands prior to European arrival. And this is the first time that they've had evidence to show that. They don't think, though, that they settled there. They think that they went, spent some time, and then came back. Maybe it was like a vacation island for them. I don't (laughs) know. Either way, that's how we are now seeing and understanding that this unique animal arrived to be the only mammal living on the Falkland Islands. So they left their dogs? They may have taken off. You know how dogs are. Yeah, that's true. So all of them must be extremely inbred. They must have been. Like a cheetah. Is it the cheetah? Yeah, I I, I remember this now. Remember the episode I did on genetic bottlenecks? Oh, yeah, yeah. Cheetahs are very inbred. They are so inbred that genetically they are almost identical. They went through that genetic bottleneck and their genetic diversity plummeted. They survived only through brother, sister, or parent-to-child mating, according to ABC Science. Ooh. Well, I'm glad they survived. You're not pro-cheetah incest, is that... Ew, stop. I don't even want to talk about this anymore. Okay. Um, anyway, so there you go. I got most of my information from Science News, National Geographic, Wikipedia, obviously, and MessyBeast.com. And we aren't joking, zanies. <laughs> we we want to we want to get back on the road again. I'm I'm thinking maybe if we could do something, maybe four or five, three, four, five shows between, say, middle of March and end of April, May, something so like that. that sounds fun. Yeah. 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 But um, I was thinking we should also do something this summer. Really? Yeah. Like okay. maybe West Coast July-ish. Okay. Maybe I'm, just, I'm just throwing it out there. Your, your idea of breaking up the uh, country into quadrants, mm. doing a Southwest, Southeast, Northeast, and Northwest oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. tour. That might be fun. I think so. All right, we'll look into it. And we'll keep you posted. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The box of oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash BoxOfOdditiesPodcast On Twitter at BoxOfOddities And Instagram at BoxOfOdditiesPodcast Copyright 2022. All rights reserved.
doing? What's what's happening? What are you doing? Oh, sorry, I was undressing you with my <laughs> eyes. <laughs> you weirdo. Okay. Hello, everyone. Takuyi here, and I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Are you interested in the parts of history that remain a mystery? Do you want to learn more about the historical myths and misconceptions used to prop up false belief today? I'm Nathaniel Lloyd. In my podcast, Historical Blindness, I delve into all of these topics, sharing puzzling tales from the past and examining hoaxes, conspiracy theories, and misremembered events that provide insight into modern politics and religion. New episodes every two weeks. Find Historical Blindness on most podcast players and platforms.